Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I am your host, BZ Douglas. Today my guest is writer Christopher Johnston, and we're going to be discussing his book, Shattering Silences, Strategies to Prevent Sexual Assault, Heal Survivors, and Bring Assailants to Justice. Chris also has a new play with Playwrights Local titled Live Bodies for Sale. The show premieres tomorrow, Friday, November 22nd, and will run until December 15th. You can find more information and tickets at playwrightslocal.org. I'm going to get right into today's interview, which has very little editing except here and there for a little bit of time constraints. But be sure to also check out the website for the podcast at bzlistening.com for more links on how you can support the incredible organizations and individuals that Chris is highlighting with his work. Uh, Okay, that's about it. As always, thank you so much for listening, and now let's get on with the show. So I am sitting here with Christopher Johnston, uh, author, writer, journalist, playwright, all the, you do words. You do all the words. I do words, yeah. Yeah. That's what I do best. You do words good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It was really my only gift. I really felt like I was never going to be a doctor. I was never going to be a, you know, scientist or engineer. So uh, it's what I loved and, uh. I think I can honestly say I didn't know what that meant until I was 30. I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was about 14, and I majored in English, and I learned how to write, and I did all those things, and I got a job where I had to write, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And then when I started to freelance, I got laid off. The architectural firm I was working for was bought by a big firm out of San Mateo, California, and they basically said to me, You've got about six months till we lay you off because this is redundant, this department. Now, were you like doing copywriting or something? Um, or? I was doing – at that point, I was doing business development stuff. So ah. proposals, case studies, resumes, speeches, you know, whatever they needed to um, – for the business development department. And at that point, I was the head of the department. I had kind of worked my way up over a few years. And I learned a lot. And it helped me start freelancing because I was pretty versatile. I could write pretty much anything you needed for a corporation. And so I did some of that, but I really wanted to do journalism um, and had not, I didn't major in it, but I started to freelance some articles about architecture actually. And then before I even left, and I also wrote a couple things for Shaker Magazine because I was living and working in Shaker, a couple of historical pieces. And... Um, Good, a guy who became a really good friend, Jim Wood, who was a um, staff writer for Cleveland Magazine, actually did some freelancing at this company, and he lived in Shaker, and his wife Jane was the editor of Shaker Mag. So I had this nice transition into freelancing, and I thought, if nothing else, I'll do it till I get another job. But it took off, and I, I've never held another job since. Congratulations! Been, yeah, it's been it's been a good ride. I I don't take that for granted. Now, I first met you what would have been, I guess, 2003 or 4-ish, uh, doing a yeah. play over here in Cleveland at the uh, Dabama Theater back when it was on Coventry. Uh, we were talking about it before we started, uh, Loud Americans. Was that um, something you were doing while you were working at that firm, or was this after? No. Well, I got into playwriting actually in grad school, 
And uh, I, I had seen a lot of plays as a kid. My parents took us. We went at school, field trips. But it was always Shakespeare and Restoration drama and French drama and never anything that I heard in my head that I could write. But when I was in grad school, I lived in upstate New York, and we would go into the city all the time. And um, my dad also, the company he worked for, had an apartment at 63rd and 3rd. And they, if the salespeople weren't using it, I could use it. So I would go in for a week, two weeks, catch as many plays as I could. That's when I started to hear Sam Shepard and David Mamet and Wendy Wasserstein. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, I – that's a voice I could write in. And I started to write, you know, kind of contemporary stuff. And then when I came back to Cleveland, Susan Patrone actually had done the lab company at the Playhouse, which was, it was Ohio University's program then. I think Eric Coble went on to do it later after me. Um, so I did my internship at the Playhouse just to see, am I kidding myself? Can I actually, and I did pretty well. Everybody liked my stuff. So then I started to write plays. Um, did some stuff at CPT. My first full length there was in 2000, March of 2000, sexually explicit material. So then I started really. That was the title of the play or yeah. it was just uh, all sexually? It, it was, <laughs> no, it was great because it was, that, that, that was the title of the play. It was um, a docudrama also uh, based on about four years of interviews with people about their sex lives. I always felt like Sex was either clinical, you know, you have to wear a condom, or tee-hee-hee, kind of, you know. Or sal- yeah, salacious. Jokes. Or- yeah. So I did interviews with people for four years. I just I went to coffee shops. I put up posters, you know, if you want to call my, this is my number. And I got a bunch of people. I talked to probably 40 or 50 people and then put this play together. And um, we did it in March of 2000. And it was we sold out every night except for St. Patrick's Day which was about half an audience, but everybody was drunk. So it was crazy. Um, <laughs> but it was good. I had I had young mothers tell me they wish they could bring their children because they felt that it was better than what they were getting in sex ed at school, you know, or they weren't getting anything. Mm-hmm. So it was good. But it was that was my first major real uh, full-length play, and then I started doing other stuff and then got connected to Night Kitchen. And I think I had seen you in other plays too. Did you? I had only done um, Angst 84. Oh, yeah. So I saw you in that, Tony's play. And um, so I knew of you when we were casting Loud Americans. And that that was a uh, a punk punk rock theme play. Yeah. That uh, had live music and original music. And it was before I was a musician. And I'm like, now I look back, I'm like, I would have loved to have been in that and been in the band. Well, yeah, I know. That would have been ideal, but. Nobody, I think maybe did Dwayne, Dwayne played Dwayne some played, stuff maybe, yeah. but um, we didn't have enough people in the act, the cast to have do the band. And yeah. So, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a great show. They the used to have, kitchen. the Night Kitchen was sort of this uh, more experimental uh, offshoot they did. And the, and the plays would often go on much later at night sometimes. And yeah, and, and yeah. it was for edgier stuff or newer stuff. Yep. It was really perfect for Coventry too when the theater was still there because it had that younger vibe, the younger people who would be hanging out at bars at 10:30 or 11 and could come over and see a show or so. Yeah, that was a great program. Um, thank you, David Hansen. Thank you, Dan Kilbane. Thank you, Tony. Yes. Yeah. Thank Everybody. you, Tony Thayer. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of good people where, you know, Brian Padesi, 
that's the first time I ever saw him act in a mm-hmm. Mike Geither play. Um, so yeah, the Cleveland theater all stars. Yeah, yeah. Here, um, reminiscing. So, what was your first foray into journalism? Well, I did those couple little things. They were softer edged, you know, architectural reviews and history, Shaker history about when the Shakers left this area and uh, the time in, I think it was 1892. I don't even remember when some um, politician blew up the the grist mill as a campaign uh, little gig, you know, and so um, I, just these little real short articles. I did one about the the cemetery right by Heinen's there at, on Lee Road because um, it's kind of tucked back and you can't see it from the road. But um, in fact, I, I, I was pretty, you know, I'm reading all this stuff that's pretty intense and I wrote this article that there's garbage blown around these gravestones. And she kind of came back to me and said, Chris, this is Shaker Magazine. We try to do like really positive stuff. So <laughs> I had to rewrite it. But um, so I was just kind of finding so my way. So you jumped right into the hard journalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dove right in, yeah. Um, so then I just started, I pitched, I wrote anything and everything. I wrote, I pitched stuff to Cranes. I did stuff for them. Plain Dealer Special Sections, Northern Ohio Live. I wrote for everybody just to kind of pay my dues and sharpen my pen. And um, so I learned a lot. It was a great experience. And it also was how I was paying my bills. So, um, but I, I think as I grew as a writer and got more confident, I started to take on tougher subjects. And, um, and did you have anyone or, you know, learning the, the field of journalism and, and, you know, verifying things and how you question people and into, yeah, was that all, you know, you just kind of dove in and did it, or did you have mentors going into that? I had, well, I had one journalism, no, I had two journalism mentors, Ted Schwartz, who he's written more than a hundred books, articles, everything, really an amazing guy who I met. And I wrote, I actually wrote a profile of him for the Cleveland edition, which was the true first alternative publication in my lifetime, other than the plain dealer kind of breaking away from that. And then the free times came and scene turned into more of a journalism piece, not just music. Um, but Jim Wood was really the guy, and he had graduated from Berkeley, their J school, with a degree in journalism and had worked as a journalist. And he spent a lot of time with me, helping me shape stories, you know, tell me how to just to kick off a story, you know, in Medias Res, you know, in the middle of things, just like a great novel. or So just lessons that he kind of helped shape me as a journalist. And then it was just, I just wrote as much as I could just to learn and did, I did Q and A's, I did business stories, I did arts and theater stories, um, arts and music. I did anything and everything just to learn and get experience and get my name out there. And people used to kid me because I'd have like five articles a week, you know, in five different publications because that's how I made my living. So, um, but then it was just a matter of kind of learning on my own and experimenting. And I also read, I, when I started freelancing, I subscribed to like 15 magazines and I read them cover to cover every month just to learn, okay, if you're profiling someone, you know, how do you, how do you lead? How do you uh, progress? How do you develop the story? What's the conclusion? You know, what do you try to take people to? And 
Um, and then I would read about how to do interviews and, you know, just studied all on my own as much as I could. Yeah. Deep looking at, I mean, that resonates for me. Like that's how I learned coding and even music to a degree is just like, you know, with coding, it's you view the source and how did they do that? How do they do that page? And then yeah. with, with music, you know, learn a lot from just covering things and breaking, deconstructing songs and stuff like that. Sure. So, yeah. Um, so I want to, dive into now your your book uh shattering silences uh, i'm gonna go to, you know let's just read the whole title here shattering silences strategies to prevent sexual assault heal survivors and bring assailants to justice um so the impetus for this book was the the cleveland strangler um am i correct the the what Anthony Sowell. Anthony yeah. Sowell. Yeah. I, there's a part of me that I think that's just like, I don't want to remember this man's name. Right. Um, yeah, it was kind of strange because I wasn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't really, well, let me go back a second. When I did yeah. sexually explicit material, every woman I interviewed said that she had been assaulted or harassed at some point in her life. And that was a real eye opener for me. I just, I I happened obviously but I didn't think it was that prevalent so that was in the back of my head and now this is many many years later um, 2009 so I guess it was less than 10 years later but 2009 uh, so well was arrested in October on Halloween the, yeah that was crazy on Halloween yeah and a good friend of mine a journalist uh, Robert Sperna who writes more about crime. I really didn't write about crime. That was one of the things I didn't do. Um, asked me if I would help co-author this book. He he wanted to write a book about so well. So I kind of, I did want to know, this is my hometown. Are we going to sweep this under the rug? Are we going to step up? So he and I would go out in the neighborhood. We kind of, we'd be there for the vigils. We'd interview people, whoever would talk to us. Some people would, some people wouldn't. And it was funny because... <laughs> People in the neighborhood thought I was a detective because I'm a white guy. And police knew I was a reporter because they knew I wasn't a cop. So it was just funny to be in the neighborhood. And uh, we went to the trial, uh, which was a couple months. That was real dark. That's the darkest thing I've ever experienced. The, there were five survivors who testified who could basically tell you what he did to the people who he killed, except they miraculously survived for one reason or another. But I really at that point knew that's not what I wanted to write. But along the way, I had met the solutions providers, which is really my preference. Um, Megan O'Brien at Rape Crisis Center and then Sandra Miller replaced her after she left. Um, captain, he's now a captain, but he was Lieutenant McPike, who was the head of the sex crimes unit back then. Uh, Liz Booth, who was a sexual assault nurse examiner at Metro, who was a true force of nature. And those are the people I wanted to write about. So I pitched a cover story to Christian Science Monitor on how Cleveland had responded to this horrific crime. And um, so I mentioned so well in that, but I really didn't want to focus on him, talked about these people. And in the course of doing that, I, I learned that there were other cities taking this new approach that was much more compassionate, uh, trauma-informed, victim-centered approach that was fairly new, uh, and being much more aggressive in going after the offenders. And so I said to my, I have an agent in New York, a book agent, and I said, I think this could be a book because it's not just Cleveland. 
And so that's, I wrote the proposal and came up with the book. So. Now, in 2009, at that point, had the um, the stories broke of all these backlogs of the uh, sexual assault kit? It was right around shortly after that. And part of it here was because of that case, because he had committed other rapes. He was a serial rapist and not just a murderer, but... Um, so that was, that came out that had they done these backlog kits, he might've been caught sooner and put away. Uh, but it was happening. Was he in that system? Did that, I don't. Yeah. He, he'd actually served time for rape, like 10, 12 years. Like he was in for a long time. Um, but had gotten out and come back to Cleveland. And so they knew his background and just didn't really, um, for a lot of reasons, it's kind of complicated. I think it's just hard with missing persons because they are adults. And so if someone says, oh, I, you know, I haven't seen my daughter in eight, six months mm -hmm. while well, she's 30, there's not much you can do, you know, and it's not that, I'm not, I don't mean to discount the fact that it, they weren't pursuing these cases. Um, there were other things like the cost of processing a kid at the time was something like several thousand dollars. And now it's down to about $500, which is a huge difference for a municipality that has, you know, 400 cases a year and you're testing 400 kits. Um, but in Detroit, for example, they had 12,000 backlog kits that had been hidden by the mayor and the police chief who Thank God, um, Kim Worthy, the county prosecutor, who is another force of nature, kind of busted them, put them away. Yeah, and, I, I got to say, the the book is, it's equal parts in infuriating and inspiring. Because, uh, and the latter really stems from all these amazing people that you, you shine a light on. Yeah, that's what I tried to focus on. Yeah, the um, I think the the ones the one that really stood out for me as as uh, I, I was and she keeps coming up. I think in every chapter was uh, uh, let's see. This is why I wrote everybody's name down. Rebecca Campbell. Oh, yeah, she's she's amazing. Um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about what uh, her her role in the book? Yeah, she's really huge in the in the whole movement, and she's involved nationally. Um, Cleveland, the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office made that turn in 2013 and started testing backlog kits. 2015, Joe Biden got the um, Sexual Assault Kit Initiative bill passed. That's when it became, the monies became available to people who applied and Cuyahoga County got a grant of a couple million. I th they've gotten a number of them since. But um, so part of the SACI initiative is they have a training and technical assistance team that will go to any city that gets a grant and uh, work with them. And so Rebecca Campbell, Dr. Campbell, is part of this TTA team that goes out and teaches people all of this new information, this new um, literature that they have. And her specialty is in training. Um, and I've seen her train a couple times at conferences, uh, the neurobiology of trauma, which I won't get into the whole thing, but some of the things they've learned. Oh, no, are, go deep. Yeah. I mean, okay. That's I, I... <laughs> um, well, a couple of things that are stood out for me, um, and she does a great job teaching this. 
one of the things that's impacted when someone is traumatized, not just sexual assault, but um, is memory is impacted. And so, for example, if a police, a police officer is involved in a shooting, they don't talk to them for several days because it takes that long for the, the memories to gel. Same thing with an assault, and they, they just really didn't know that or teach that back until this last decade. Or that they would be, you know, all sorts of things that would be, you wouldn't expect uh, someone who suffered this to be, whether like they'd just be like flat and have like no affect or laughing inappropriately yeah. or also oh, yeah. all sorts of things that all that, the above that was uh, and that was striking to me how um she would give these presentations and it seemed like a lot of law enforcement officers would hear this and realize oh yeah oh gosh how many times have i reacted treated a victim yep if I how or I would have treated them completely different if I'd have known this. Yeah, no, I, these guys were saying to me, I, I really wish I knew that twenty years ago. We no one ever told us that. We were never trained, taught that, and um, that's one of the challenges that remains. It's still not being taught in the police academies to a, a great extent. They typically most police academies they get two hours of sexual assault statutes. That's all they get. They don't get any training in victimology, you know, what they need to learn this stuff. So thanks to Campbell, she's really, she's another force of nature who's driving this into the Michigan police academies. And it, um, some of the, Cleveland has done some in-service trainings where they, but again, you're getting a couple hours or, you know, um, but it is being drilled down more and more and it's becoming like the sex crimes guys that I worked with that I did ride-alongs with and, and interviewed they're a little more sophisticated because they're older guys and they've kind of learned this on their own or studied it themselves. But it's the first responders that are still an issue that, that need to learn this in the academies. They're just not getting it. And with um, this, uh, like the, the sort of uh, uh, approach that it is outlined in your book that, that all these people are advocating for, you know, how you approach victims um, and, and the, and, how you uh, go about the whole methodology of approaching um, investigations. I'm curious, what kind of resistance is there to this prescription? I mean, the only one that makes sense to me is if they're like, we don't have the budget or something, but I I'm trying to conjure like what, what would be the like rejection of this as like, a, we need to adopt this, across the board and as an understanding of how to deal with sexual assault victims? Um, I think it's still, well, part of it is resources. Um, but part of it is this sort of old school mindset that it's just not taken seriously for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't fully understand. I still don't know after all this time. I well, still I mean, is it is is it anything more than just sort of, you know, ingrained levels of i don't know misogyny yeah oh no i think that's the cake yeah that's a huge part of it i think they some of these guys well especially the young guys i mean you see them they they're buff they're they work out they they're wearing their black driving gloves you know and they're like really macho young guys or whatever and um and it's not just the young guys i i shouldn't just limit it to them but it is it's kind of a macho thing and it's just this sort of dismissive Oh, to get get over it, you know, kind of thing. Which, 
again, I don't, they don't fully understand the devastation that this trauma causes to any predominantly women, but any victim, uh, it's really horrific. And so they end up suffering PTSD and all these, it's a lifelong thing that they have to deal with in the same way a combat veteran does. Uh, it's not a skin knee or skinned elbow. It, it's something that you have to address the rest of your life. Some do that and move on and become successful again, thriving. Some don't. So that's what angers me, I think, because, uh, um, it's just something that's inexcusable to me, especially if you are a police officer or law enforcement or prosecutor or whatever, you have to be the white hat, you know, you have to help people. That's why you're there. So it's, it's just, it is deeply ingrained, as you said. And I think that's what everyone is still trying to overcome. But the good thing is the flip side of that is I saw a lot of guys who I would have just looking at them would have guessed and they were the most progressive of all these older guys. And, you know, the guys that I worked with have all been really cool. Uh, a lot of men, a lot of good guys that I met, police prosecutors, law enforcement, FBI. So my hope is that as this continues to shift, that they will drive that down just through their practices. But no, you're right. I mean, we have a long way to go. It's far from perfect. Well, and it isn't just the police who seem like they need a reorientation of thinking there there's also um medical practitioners who are out of their depth when it would come to this and yeah. and it was really heartbreaking reading the uh, parts of you know women who would be you know sent to the er to get a rape kit and like well you're you're at the bottom of the totem pole because we have people bleeding out of their heads and yep. things like that yep. and or walk in there with the instruction book of how to do it. Yeah, and, no, it's, it's and it was pretty appalling. The or one of the early chapters was um really I don't it, it was I could f see the the scenario there of how they deal with uh the the what they call sexual assault nurse examiner examiner yeah. uh who are trained in this and they they go through the whole process making sure that the victim has complete control always checking in with them and make and letting them know you can stop this at any time as yeah. opposed to just like you have to do this and, and yeah no that and that i think in the time that i was working on the book and now um because i still talk to some of the nurses that i worked with at metro and and stay in touch with some of those guys but because it became at the time it wasn't really a very strong field. There just weren't that many sexual assault nurse examiners, sexual assault forensic examiners out there. Now, because it's become ingrained in these hospitals, the doctors know it's there and they actually appreciate it because now it means they don't have to deal with that. So they're like, please, thanks. Please, you know, have the sexual assault nurse examiner department over there. And um, so it's, it's actually helped quite a bit that doctors have understood, they understand now, this is a profession, they're doing great work, they're compassionately treating these patients, but they're also collecting forensic evidence that can help take these guys out, you know, put them in prison. And But yeah, they, they've come a long way um, since I, even back in 20, well, 2009, but I, I met Liz Booth, I think, maybe a year or so later um, so, but since then they've come pretty far. 
and, and don't they try not to get in the way now yeah I think. it is another component of you know how cities address this is having these dedicated spaces to deal with sexual assault and i couldn't have been more proud of uh cleveland reading this book just the yeah. amount of resources and the thought that went into just setting up the facilities like where they were how they're built what the interiors are even like and and um their proximity to things and all the thought that went into like oh we don't want people to have to go this far out of their way to do this or that um that's i can see is again like we're talking about like one of the hurdles here is resources is like well this is you should have a dedicated rape crisis center yeah well i again and again we are very fortunate here because a lot of cities don't have what we do and um I was doing a story about Ohio and how far we've come and what we still need to do that ran earlier this year. And uh, I was talking to people in other cities and their rape crisis centers have three people, two people. Um, they just officially became a rape crisis center and ours has been here for 40 years. Um, and I, our, our Cleveland Rape Crisis Center is probably the best in the country and if it's not, there's no one better. And the story of its founding was actually pretty in, uh, inspiring. Yeah, Jean we'll Van Atta. That a bit. Yeah, she, that was a great experience for me because I had been working with everybody now, and they're so far along, and they have so many resources and can really help people in different ways. And they have incredible programs that you know other cities just don't even can't even think about. Um, and they're the role model for a lot of cities, and they all speak. They travel the country and speak. But um, Jean Van Atta was one of the four. She's the only one I've met. I have not met the other three who founded the Rape Crisis Center with her. But, yeah, I mean, that was nothing. They they found this little office space on Euclid at, like, 30th or something, and they had one phone, and it was just ridiculous what they did. But they knew there was that need. And even then, they were going in and training prosecutors, you know, trying to. They didn't all listen, training police, talking to police, because they saw that as a big need even back then, that that's where a change had to happen. So she's really an impressive person. I really enjoyed talking with her. She's a Cleveland Heights person here. And um, um, she's done some writing. She's done some journalism. She and her husband travel quite a bit. They have been to Thailand several times um, that she told me about. But... Yeah, so I, I think that was the foundation for a lot of things that came out of that. Um, sexual assault nurse examiner programs, Ohio has 80. We have the most in the country as a state, and some states have two. So again, I think we're, we have a lot more than most. And um, in fact, a woman that I know who's in Oregon just she just got this bill passed a few months ago that if someone is sexually assaulted that they have access to a sane nurse they just didn't even have they didn't have that right and now they do because of this bill she had been raped and assaulted um like several years ago so yeah i think we have a lot of resources and um assets here that, that a lot of other cities or states don't and um nationwide too uh the one institution i learned about in this book was the joyful heart foundation yeah um which was founded by the uh one of the lead actress in law and order svu yeah marishka hargate 
Yeah. So who wouldn't talk to me? Ah. <laughs> yeah. No, I tried. They they um they were pretty funny. They all wanted her to talk to me, and she, I don't know. She was too busy. Whatever. So the their media relations person suggested that I go to this annual fundraiser they do, and they could I could stand on the red carpet and like hope that she would talk to me as she went by. And I said, you know, I, I can't afford to like go to New York and hang out and with the hope that she's going to stop and I'd get, you know, 30 seconds. So I, I don't know why, but she, um, I mean, she, she didn't say no, that she could have easily said no if she didn't want me to be doing that. But um, they were extremely helpful and I spent a lot of time with Ilsa Connect, their development person, and um, shadowed her. In the office, we went to Harrisburg together, as you know from the book. Um, so she was great, and she, and they really are leaders. They, in fact, the good news there is they've gotten to the point where um, their two missions were to make sure people were testing backlog kits, but their other mission was to help foster new legislation. And they would go travel all over. They'd go to these, you know, work with the different um, senators, representatives. And um, they've gotten to the point where they can't get to everybody now because there's so much new legislation kind of percolating. Um, so they, they feel a little bit overwhelmed. And they have a lot of boilerplate stuff they can send people. And they'll also generate new letters if, if um, a representative needs support. But uh, Ilsa was telling me a few months ago that they're, they can't even help everybody anymore. So that's, you know some good new legislation coming up. And the other thing that uh, Cleveland seemed to sh shined in with, uh, especially the, the going through the backlog, was the conviction rate. Yeah, it's was, the highest it in the country. exceptionally high. Yeah. And there were other cities that had similar backlog levels but didn't see the same clearance rate. Uh, I didn't, I, I just wonder if that was a matter of where the, the investigation's just stronger here on the follow-up on the kits, yeah. do you think? I think, and I think they just, they made a serious commitment to do this, and they put the resources into it. They hired, at, I think at the peak point, they're down a little bit now because they're almost done. They were up to something like 25, 27 investigators. Um, they had victim advocates. They had prosecutors assigned to this, so they... Uh, the guy in charge, Rick Bell, who's really incredible. I think he's running for judge. Um, he really made sure that they took this seriously. They, I, they kind of embedded me, which was cool. I could go to their meetings. I could interview whoever. And so I saw them in action in their office, and and everybody was pretty serious. And they had, um, they used technology to, which you would understand. You could talk to them better than I can, but. Um, they made sure that they tracked everything and they really, these investigators were out there working hard. And so it showed up in the results. They, they have the best results nationwide. So. And with these backlogs, they would prioritize the ones that were uh, approaching the statute of limitations. And that came up a lot. And I, got, I, I wanted to ask you, what? Why do we have statute of limitations? <laughs> what is the yeah, societal benefit of it? I mean, like, it seems like something that was enacted by someone who got away with some shit, and then they were a legislator, and like, I want to make this thing called a statute of limitations so that if I ever get sniffed out, yeah. what? 
I'm trying to find the positive reason for a statute of limitations personally. Um, and I'm not a big I'm not big on carceral the carceral state. Right. And yeah, I tend to air, be more skeptical of of a lot of things with when it comes to the justice system. Right. But that's something that kept coming up where and and in the one place where it was really a uh, problem was with like the Catholic Church, like because they are trying to abolish the statute of limitations in uh, New York, and and it's the Catholic Church that's fighting that for I'm sure completely innocent reasons. <laughs> well, I think they they have a lot of praise. Be... Man, that's a bad look. I can't yeah, believe they're just uh, like, no, look, this terrible. we I know this looks bad, but we it's gonna look worse if we. <laughs> yeah, they they're trying to save money on lawsuits, I think, but. Um... Yeah, no, the, to me, there should be no statute of limitations on rape. Uh, it, to me, it's it's hard to even say it's second to murder because you're basically killing that person in many cases in terms of destroying their life. Um, I think one of the reasons that they exist is because sometimes the evidence deteriorates or people get lost. They can't find them as witnesses so there's always challenges, but to me it doesn't matter well, because I don't see why that's a reason murder. to preclude a no. trial. Like if the evidence is weak and the case isn't there to be made, then you're, then yeah, you don't get you won't be able to take it to trial. Yeah, but that's to what just happens. preclude a trial because right. well, there, yeah, no, I, I to me it's absurd. There should not be any, let alone whether it's you know five years, ten years, twenty five years. There shouldn't be any, especially if it's a child. That's what New York was doing because. Uh, if a child is assaulted at, you know, six or seven, they're not going to pursue a trial. You know, they're, they're probably not going to say anything or their family won't say anything. So, but the, the good news is on that, because prosecutors know that, so now they can indict someone's DNA to get around the statute of limitations. So even if they don't have a name, they can indict your DNA profile and then you're done. There's Does that no, just like reset the clock? And then if yeah, they find there, the DNA, there is match, no. Yeah, the, the, uh, there's that's it because yeah. you've been indicted mm. before the statute um, expires. So they could find you 50 years later. You're still going away, or or you're going to be prosecuted. Um, so that they're trying to do several things. Um, the other thing was if a, a if, oh, there's a technical legal term for it, but. If someone is raped or assaulted and the statute of limitation expires, they can still bring them in to testify against that person, not in their case, but if the person has committed another crime, they can now bring them in and have them testify that they were assaulted you know, 20 years ago or something. And um, so they, they can't pursue their own case if the, it's expired, but they can help assist in other cases. So they're trying to get around it, and but there's a lot of states or there's a lot of movements to eliminate them, and I hope that starts to happen. So um, with the I, a refrain I see a lot in the book from you know the the, the Joyful Heart Foundation or you know a lot of people is uh, there's sort of this hyperbolic statement that comes out a lot like we're going to end sexual violence and. I see a lot of good things in here for like deterrence. Like if you, if you, if now as a rape, you know, if you're someone who's, con who's a rapist or, you know, you're a predator, now, you know, the system is far less likely to, you know, sh ignore your victims and, and, um, 
and that's important. But I one thing that I don't know if you you know it it, it wasn't it just wasn't appropriate for the book or what, but I'm just kind of struggling with like how do we stop or where is the cause of it? You know what I mean? Like if you're going to say we stop it to me, it's not just deterrence. It's finding out like what is sick in our society that causes this, or is it just a matter of, Oh, some people are rapists. Um, well, I would say you're right. It is kind of hyperbolic and you have to say we have, we have to stop it. We have to end it as opposed to saying, let's cut back by 25%. You know, I mean, it just, it makes everybody more like, It wouldn't be hyperbolic inspired. to me to say, we're going to end, like, you know, the the the, the, the broken system yeah. that lets these people fall through the cracks. Right. Well, I think the one of the biggest movements I've seen since I finished the book, and some of it has to do with Me Too or Time's Up movements, but is preventive measures that have to go down into schools, religious institutions, um, parents with their children. Um, I'm seeing a real swing in that direction because the, you're never going to end it if you don't look at those causal issues. Well, it's like we were talking about earlier with um, sexually ex your sexually explicit material is the, the reticence in this country to talk candidly about sex. That's a huge problem. And, yeah. and, um, that was something that, uh, uh, another character in your book, I wanted to talk about Mike Pister, Miss Pistorino. Yes. Uh, and he's also bestowed you with the title of your book too. I noticed when I, I was reading his chapter and he says, we need to shatter these silences. Oh yeah. He, well, he was one of many and I kept hearing it over and over at these conferences I would go to and, um, and, and everyone pretty much said that's where the changes happen. Yeah. That's where the good things happen for a person if they, when he, and he was you. talking about how he just like flat out tells his, you know, daughter, it's like, oh, anyone shows you their penis, yep. you tell me. <laughs> and then she tells, <laughs> she gets on the bus her yeah. first day of school and tells the bus driver, if you show me your penis, my daddy's going to give you choices <laughs> of things he's going to do to you and you're not going to like any of them. <laughs> yeah, no, his... His daughters are very funny. They're really precocious. And um, I don't know if you want to tell his story, too, a little bit, or we can talk about him because sure. he's, he's definitely a strong character in the book. Yeah, he. I got to know Mikey from the Bronx really well. He spent a lot of time with me. Uh, we went up to New York. We went down to Fort Bragg, which is in the book. Um, he was raped as a child. He was growing up in the Bronx. His father was actually a New York cop, but he was, you know, kind of never home. And when he was, he was drunk. Um, his mother owned a bar and she was typically drunk. So he would, as a five-year-old, would wander the streets of the Bronx looking for something to do, looking for someone to love him. Um, and so this house next door to his becomes a party house and this guy starts to groom him and because um, he had nowhere else to go. And he thought, oh, these guys are giving me food. I, you know, I can go over and listen to music. So they groom him. And then eventually the, the guy rapes, begins raping him almost every day for six years until he's killed in a, a drug deal gone bad. So that really set Mike on a bad path. 
um, he tells the story of the New York police came to his school and talked about drugs and they held up a little bag of cocaine and said, these are drugs. Don't do the, don't do these. They'll make you feel different. And to him, he was like, I want to feel different. So he ends up finding this place, a basement of a house and goes down and buys for 10 bucks some cocaine and becomes addicted and ends up in, in and out of prison and homeless and living on the subway, sleeping on the subway. And, um, so, but he comes out of it and, and miraculous to me, I don't think I would have survived, but, um, and then ends up realizing, well, he ends up coming to Cleveland cause he meets a woman from Cleveland and they get married. But when he got here, he felt like, um, okay, I'm, I'm rehabbed. I'm not alcoholic anymore. I'm sober now. Uh, and he still is to this day. Um, but I'm still having problems and they'd be at the mall and he'd see somebody around little kids and he would grab them and throw them out of the, <laughs> throw them out of the mall. And so his wife finally said to him, you know, I think you still need some help. Mike calls the Cleveland crisis center. Uh, they start to treat him, get him into group therapy, individual therapy. And he kind of deals with that issue. And then all of a sudden they start using him as a public speaker in their bureau and he realizes he can have an impact and, and, um, he really wants to help kids, and he's just really an amazing um, – he, he spoke all over. He spoke to adults. In fact, when we went to Fort Bragg, he was talking to the, the soldiers, but but he also um, works with kids and would talk to attorneys and anybody who uh, ends up helping kids when they get assaulted or molested or abused at home or whatever it might be. So, yeah, he's a really complex character. Yeah, his, his chapter is probably one of the wildest rides in the book. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. So your new play, uh, Live Bodies for Sale, is dealing with human trafficking. Yeah, w what happened was uh, I was still working on the book, and because there's a crossover with law enforcement and prosecution and uh, the sexual assault nurse examiners, they all end up dealing with trafficking, either the victims or the offenders, the pimps. Um, so I was introduced to Renee Jones, who has the Renee Jones Empowerment Center, and, and she is, she was so far ahead of the curve. I mean, the federal law, there was no law against trafficking in federally until 2000. There was no law in Ohio against trafficking until 2010. In 2002, she opened her center, which then became, originally it was focused on helping homeless people. But she was over on West 65th and has since moved, but um, she would be out on the streets. She They would go out at 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 7 at night, whatever. And she started to talk to the street prostitutes and learned uh, that the, they were being exploited by pimps, traffickers. So she got into it and started helping women recover who wanted to get off the street. So in 2008, the FBI actually came to her because she knew more about it than they did. They were just kind of taking a serious approach at that point. And so um, she became sort of the heart of what I was doing. I wrote about her. I wrote another article, Christian Science Monitor, about Cleveland's approach to human trafficking, and, and she was at the heart of that, kind of the central profile. And so um, a few years ago, I had all this material from interviews and it just started to coagulate for me as a play. I thought this could be a good docudrama. 
So I went to her and, and said, do you think I could interview, spend more time with the survivors? So the play is actually, the heart of the play is these five survivors that I've interviewed who are all incredible stories. Um, but then I do have, I have the head of the Human Trafficking Task Force here, John Detective John Morgan. I have Renee. I have Sister Cecilia who works with Renee and also attends um, Judge Marilyn Cassidy has the Human Trafficking Specialized Docket for women who want to participate in the program. And it's like a two-year program. And she helps them kind of get straight, whatever they need, rehab, housing, education, jobs. And they all go to Renee's. Uh, that's part of the program. They have to go there for therapy and, and group sessions. And But she has everything, horse therapy, art therapy, music therapy, yoga therapy, everything. So um, it's a really amazing program. So the play is about these women, but then I also have scenes with the detective, uh, Rick Bell, the prosecutor, who was also in charge of the sexual assault kit task force. Uh, he oversees trafficking prosecutions. And um, I do have a pimp who's taken from, I never met him, but he's, t he's a real pimp case. And so I took court documents, testimony from, and kind of learned from the investigators about this guy. And so I, he's a character. And then there's a young woman who, um, she was from North Olmstead, I think. And so she got addicted. Her boyfriend got her into cocaine. She got addicted. So she falls into this life, ends up getting trafficked. The, they they rescue her a couple times. She gets sober. She gets straight, falls back into it again. By the time I learned about her and I was working with an investigator who has since retired, um, she they had rescued her again. And I was supposed to interview her. They were setting it up for me. And they came back to me and said that we found her dead in a motel. She overdosed. So I made her a character just sort of to honor her legacy because um, I learned a lot from her case. They shared a lot with me from her uh, interviews that she had done with the task force. And um, so I have this parallel going on of this is what's happening today. And then the women, the five survivors are talking about their life stories, what happened to them, how they escaped, um, so forth. So that's that's really how the play is structured. All right. Did you learn about um, new idiosyncrasies for uh, dealing with survivors and, that, the, and the investigative process uh, that's, that, that is specific to human trafficking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very – they're just a slight – maybe a couple millimeters behind the sexual assault side, um, but they're catching up. They've learned a tremendous amount. Um, again, they struggle with not having enough resources, but because it's being more recognized now, people you're seeing more articles about it, you're hearing more about it, they're starting to get more tension. In fact, I'm working on a new article now. I can't say too much because I'm just getting started, but there's actually a group of um, former FBI, former CIA that started this group and they go out and they do most of it on computers. They sit in their living rooms with computers and they track these guys down and they compile a case. And once they have enough actionable intelligence, they turn it over to a jurisdiction mm -hmm. 
and they're so they're they're starting to go after these guys more aggressively and so I'm seeing a lot more but they um the other thing that happened that's good for the, to give them more tools um even when I first got involved a pimp could be they could put together a great case and they'd get 18 months probation and it was almost like for them it was like you know yeah this is great it's street cred you know so since then the legislations have improved have changed and now they can go away for 40 50 60 years if they're involving um if they're aggravating circumstances that they were trafficking children they can go away for life so it's not a joke anymore they're going to go away for a long time and so that changed that was good um but they they know a lot they know detective morgan who's been very supportive of this play and, and he's one of the characters um Spent a lot of time with me, spent some time with our actor who's playing him. Uh, he came last night to our rehearsal to talk to everybody and just he's really had everybody energized and inspired because he's an amazing guy. But um, so they know they know quite a bit about these guys. They know how to track them down now. And um, so I think it's just going to get better and better in terms of putting them away. Uh, so where's the where's the play going up and how long is it running? It opens next Friday, November 22nd at Playwrights Local in the Waterloo Arts District and runs for four weekends um, to December 15th, Friday, Saturday at 7.30, Sunday at 2.30. Uh, the other thing we're doing is we have a whole slate of these experts that I've interviewed. They're all going to come in and do talkbacks and panels and um, everybody's just been so, they're really excited about this because it's an opportunity to raise public awareness through the arts, but, um, so I, I wanted to support that with other, other programs and speakers. And, um, so I think it's, it's going to be a nice package for everybody to, to learn more. So aside from, uh, buying your excellent book and seeing what I'm sure is your excellent play, uh, I want to know, like, what do you think are the best ways that just someone who's disturbed by this to help out more in the community i mean i because there's there's a lot of great things going on all throughout the book where you know people are just setting up like donating clothes so that when these victims are, yep. are you know sometimes their clothes that they come in wearing certainly get a sexual assault kit done their evidence so they keep a nice big wardrobe up if they're willing to relinquish their clothes as evidence yes i just wanted to know kind of wrap things up what do you think uh people can do just average people can do to help out I think there's actually a lot. Um, obviously, if you see something that looks suspicious, report it. Um, but but you don't have to be a police officer um, or a nurse or a doctor. If you have money, give money to these organizations, Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, Renee Jones Empowerment Center, um, Collaborative to End Human Trafficking. There's a number of organizations that are out there. Make sure you give me a list and I'll have links to all of them. Yeah, I can put this I, they have an amazing list with oh. links and everything. I'll give you that. Um, so if you have some money, you can give them that. If you have time, give them that. They all need volunteers. Um, they do special events. They need volunteers. They have like Rape Crisis Center. You can do training and become a hotline operator if you want. But you don't even have to go to that extent. You can do other things. Um, I also say if you're an artist, if you have any type of um, – gift with the arts you can contribute just like i'm doing i wrote this play you know 
Um, if you're a musician, you can write songs about it, whatever it might be. So that's an, that's another venue uh, opportunity. And then the other thing is to just sort of stay on track with legislation, see what's being uh, raised in, in like the Ohio House and um, – if you can support the people who are like Senator Fetter, Teresa Fetter out of Toledo, uh, Tavia Glonsky, Rep Glonsky from Akron, they actually work together. And, and Teresa Fetter is, is really amazing. In the last decade, she's passed eight or nine bills against, you know, trafficking and also to help victims. So if you, if you follow that, you can use your vote sometimes to, to support these efforts and, so you don't have to to think that you have to be a police officer. There are other nonviolent ways to help. And well, I tell you, I was reading this book and and I just kept thinking, like, man, I wish I could become a cop or yeah. a nurse. Like, yeah. I wish because no, I, I, I work in like advertising for the most part, just making websites <laughs> for a lot of bullshit. And I'm just like, ah, I wish I was doing something this meaningful and helpful, really. But um, thank, I want to thank you so much, Chris, for oh, writing you, this Brian. book and everything you've done, and I wish you nothing but success, and I can't wait to follow more of uh, you on this beat. Yeah, I, I have no intention of stopping. I, I feel like I got my PhD in the course of writing that book, so um, I'm, I'm going to continue to write about all these issues for the rest of my life. So thank you, Brian. I appreciate being on. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash bzdug. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.